When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, lovely to chat to you. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much. Okay, our lines are open for you. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Chris is here to answer your questions. So, uh, Chris, what's this about feeling older than you are? Is there a scientific uh, reason for that? And what's the impact if you start feeling older than you are? How does it uh, influence the rest of your life? Yeah, well, there's a paper that came out this week. It's in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Internal Medicine Journal. And... This is done by researchers in London, Andrew Steptoe and his colleagues at University College London. And I went to see him to find out more about this study. They took a very large number of people, thousands of people. They were people over the age of 50. And they asked the people, how old do you feel? Mm. Then they followed the people up for a period of time afterwards and looked at how likely they were to die. And the extraordinary thing that came out of this is that in line with what people already understood about the general population, most people, regardless of how old they actually are, tend to regard themselves as much younger, mentally at least, than their chronological ages. So Mm. people in their 70s would say they feel a good 8 to 9, if not 10 years younger than they really are. But people who said that they felt their age, or that they regarded their age as maybe even older than they really are, they were about 40% more likely to have died when they were followed up compared with people who said that they felt younger. Hmm. Now, they don't know why this is, and it could just be because this is an association. It's not causation. You've got to be really careful and and clear about this. You don't die because you suddenly decide that you're old and start thinking yourself old and therefore killing yourself. This is an association. Hmm. But why is it happening? Well, it could be that people who are already affected by some kind of chronic illness already don't feel very well, so they already feel older, so they're already more likely to say they're older. But either way, it's quite an interesting result. It's a very statistically significant result, and it's very cheap for a doctor to be able to say to someone, how old do you feel? And then use this, perhaps prognostically, to, to work out whether or not they should intervene in someone a bit sooner. Wow, that's very fascinating. Thank you for that. I think I'll um, use that information going forward. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. I'm smiling at this uh, question, uh, Chris, because I wouldn't have thought to ask it uh, here, but it is uh, fascinating nonetheless, and I want the answer. It says, when writing using a pen on a piece of paper and the pen doesn't work, there's no ink coming out when you scribble, and then you scribble on a separate paper and... There is ink. It, it works. However, yep. you go back to the first paper and then it doesn't do that. Oh. What's that all about? <laughs> well, um, one reason that this can happen is that the usual pens that are the, the, the frequent culprits for this are rollerballs. If you look at the ends of a biro or some of these rollerball-type pens, there is uh, usually a metal stem and then sitting in the end of it is l- quite literally a tiny metal bead or ball. And in the same way that the deodorant that you rub under your arm is a ball 
in a piece of plastic and the reservoir of deodorant is above the ball and so when you turn the bottle upside down and rub it in your armpit the ball rotates or rolls along and as it rolls it picks up a layer of the deodorant or in the case of the pen ink and this smears over the surface of the ball and as it rolls round over the paper it then rubs off onto the paper that's how the pen works when it doesn't work it's usually because the ball has become dry and dusty because the ink does have liquid wa water in it obviously because that's how it gets onto the paper and then dries and so if the pen is not used for a long period of time the ink around the ball and the ink just inside the pen where the ball is mm -hmm. can dry out and this then makes the ball stick so instead of as you draw the pen across the paper surface the ball getting moved and drawing ink across itself it, it doesn't move and so there's nothing to rub off onto the paper now the scribbling phenomenon on a separate piece of paper works because when you take the pen to the new paper and, and really give it some welly then you're putting vibrations into the ball and applying quite a lot of friction to the uh. ball forcing it to begin to turn and then it begins begins to rub off the, d the dried out not not very nice ink and brings fresh more liquid fluid ink across the ball surface and then it works when you go back to the first piece of paper, it sometimes doesn't work. Why is that? Well, some papers are much shinier than others. And if they're really shiny and the ball is already a little bit stiff in the casing at the end of the pen, then there's not enough friction between the ball and the paper surface to make the ball roll, so it just sits there. And as a result, there's no ink flow, so the pen doesn't work. And I suspect that when you've scribbled on that first piece of paper, it's probably one of those shinier, not, not very um, rough paper surfaces that is slightly less compatible and less friendly towards the end of your pen. Ah, thank you for that question, whoever sent it. Let's go to Khadi in Soweto. Good morning, Khadi. Good morning, Ridi. How are you? Fine. Your question, please. All right. I just want to find out how long should one keep a gas cylinder, a sealed gas cylinder at home. How long should one keep it? Okay. Lifespan of a gas cylinder. Well, in theory, those gas cylinders are really well made because they contain gas at such high pressure that were they to fail, then there would obviously be a catastrophic uh, explosion and also the gas they contain is very frequently especially for instance with a cooker uh, very flammable so it would be devastating were the cylinders to fail so they're made to really high specification and they're made of very good materials usually and they're also pressure tested in other words they pump into them gas to a much higher pressure than their safe operating pressure so that they know what they can withstand and then when you use them just routinely, you run them at a much, much lower pressure than they're designed to withstand. And that means they're very safe. So their lifetime is extremely long. And as long as they're well treated and they're not uh, put in fires or dented, or dropped and things like that, so that the shape of the vessel is maintained and there's no damage to the, to the metal structure, they should last a very long time. Tabelo in Tembisa, hi. Hi, morning, lady. Uh, morning, Chris. I just wanted to find out why can't mules reproduce? Right. Uh, well, first of all, what's the difference between, a, a, say, a mule and a donkey and a horse? These animals are all equines, but they are slightly different species. So as uh, evolution has led to the um, appearance of these different species, what happens there is that you get a genetic separation. Animals have different sets of genes. They look similar and the genes work the same way but they don't necessarily talk quite the same genetic language in one species compared to another 
But they're sufficiently similar that if you take a male of one species and a female of the other, they can reproduce to produce offspring that's viable. In other words, there are the right combinations of genes there to make an organism that works, and you get something which is a mixture of the two. Mm -hmm. But they then cannot necessarily have the right complement of genes that if they then want to reproduce again, they're going to produce uh, gametes, in other words, sperms or eggs, that, that contain the right complement of genes. So something, when you further divide the genetic makeup something goes wrong at that stage and they then are inviable and they can't carry on reproducing. And there's a number of studies looking at why this is and often it's because there are various genes which either talk a slightly different language genetically, they turn each other on and off in a slightly different way in, in these sorts of hybrid animals, or there are some genes which are present at a, almost like a toxic level that there are some genes that just don't work very well in one species and you normally rely on there being a counterpart in your uh, male or female mate in that species to sort out that genetic problem. When you uh, have uh, mating with an animal that's of a different species, there's not the genetic counterpart to make good that shortfall, and so as a result, you manifest a problem when you then try and have further offspring. So that probably is, is what's going on with the mule. Let's go to Douglas in Somerset West. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, I've got a question for the naked scientist. Ask your question, Douglas. You're live on the radio. Uh, I'm in a retirement village, and uh, we have tea in the afternoon. Uh, or, and coffee, but I like tea and they've got an urn, but it only has hot water in and I like to make tea with boiling water. So I take a cup full of the hot water over to the microwave and then I put it in the microwave and I see it bubbles and I know it's boiling. And then I take the cup out and put it in the saucer and now the water is still, it's stopped boiling. Well, it looks as though it has. And I put the tea bag in on the top and it boils again. And I've asked a lot of people, you know, what's the explanation behind that? But I can't get one yet. Hello, Douglas. Well, you Good have to morning. be very careful with what you're doing. And I'll explain why you have to be really careful. Because the microwave, unlike when you are putting energy into a cup or into a pot or a saucepan with a hob, where the heat is coming from the bottom and the water at the bottom would get hot and then convect, in other words, because it becomes less dense, it rises upwards through the column of water to the top, and as it does so, it, it spills out, sheds that extra energy, heating all of the water. If yeah. you heat a body of water with a cup in a microwave, the way microwave heating works is that you've got microwaves, which are a form of electromagnetic energy, same as light, they go through the cup through the water and out the other side and at certain points the microwaves jiggle around a lot and they make water molecules jiggle around and they introduce a lot of energy into certain hot spots of the water so you can get superheating of the water in certain places but not in others so this means that if you've got a very very hot patch of water surrounded by lots of less energetically um, charged bits of water then that piece of water, if you disturb the structure, you can bring a lot of those uh, high-energy areas of water together and they will then start boiling quite furiously. And you can do this by dropping things into the tea. A spoon will do it because it disturbs the structure and allows that superheated bit of water to suddenly expand and vaporise and form steam. Or you could do it with a tea bag, you could do it by shaking the cup and in some cases putting the sugar in. And this can trigger boiling and it can make 
the water boil underneath lots of other water, producing big bubbles that take up a lot of space and can throw water out of the cup and it can hit you. So you've got to be really careful when you do that because it, it could burn you. Is that okay, true, Douglas? Thank you. Thank you, thank you very thank much. You. Thanks. Uh, Lauren Newlands, hi. Hi. Mm. Hi. I think um, we've had this question I've before, but it's important. Go ahead. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. How soon um, do you think they're going to be able to find ways to, um, well, to lessen the effects of the disease? Yes, hello, Lauren. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you have multiple mm. sclerosis, but you're regressively not alone because it is very common. And even Michael Crichton, who was the guy who wrote Jurassic Park, when he, he was a medical student originally at Harvard, and he had an episode of a phenomenon which is the precursor to getting multiple sclerosis. In his case, luckily, the disease didn't progress, but for many people, when they have the disease starting it keeps coming back it it relapses and remits in other words you get a a flare-up of the condition and then it goes away and what is happening is that the immune system for some reason that we really don't understand decides to pick on a patch of brain or spinal cord parts of the immune system move into the central nervous system they attack the coating that surrounds and supports nerve fibers which is called myelin and the myelin in that area of the brain is destroyed because of the immune response to it. The disease then quietens down again, and because the brain has a population of stem cells which are throughout the brain tissue, those stem cells are recruited back into action, and they make new myelin-producing cells called oligodendrocytes, which reinvest the nerve fibres that have been denuded of their insulating myelin, and that's why the symptoms improve again usually for a while, and then the disease comes back later and it attacks maybe that area again or it may begin to affect another part of the nervous system. And when it's attacking that part of the nervous system, the person gets symptoms corresponding to the job that that part of the nervous system does. So if if it affects the optic nerve, for example, which carries information from the eye to the brain, then a person may describe visual disturbances. If it affects the parts of the brain that contain the nerve pathways for movement, people may find their movements become difficult on the affected part of the body. What can we do to stop this? At the moment, we really only have blunt instruments with which to stop MS. That blunt instrument is a way to stop the immune system attacking the nervous system. Uh, These drugs, which are immunosuppressing, unfortunately have consequences because your immune system needs to work for a reason to Mm. fend off assault from viruses and bacteria and things like that if you damp down the workings of the immune system you therefore have other consequences such as an increased likelihood of getting infections and things so there are often undesired side effects but this only treats one aspect of ms which is well what about the damage that's already been done because although the brain repairs itself the repair isn't perfect. It's a bit like if you dented your car, you could rub down the dent and you could put some new paint on it, but there'd still be a dent there, which might, to a a keen eye, still be visible. It's the same in the nervous system. Can we repair that long-term damage? Scientists are looking at that now and they're taking a number of approaches. One of them is to to do very powerful um, control of the immune system related just to how it attacks myelin, and this seems to give the brain more time to repair itself.
Another approach is to ask, can we put new cells into the brain to make up the damage, and can we also get new nerve tissue into the brain to make up the damage for the damage done to nerve cells, which ultimately happens as well. The scientists are working on all of those things, but we're not there quite yet. Thank you very much, Lauren. Thank you, and uh, sorry to hear about that. Good luck. Um, let's go to, and I think it has helped a lot of people as well who've had to this question, and it keeps coming up over and over again. Thank you. Let's go to, uh, is it Llewellyn in Centurion? Hello? Yes, good morning. I would just like to know, if you burn a bag of um, wood, let's say 10 kilograms, where does all the weight go? Um, at the end, you end up with just a few grams of ash. Yeah, that's a lovely question. I can ask you a related one, which is, do you drive a car? Yes. And what do you fuel your car with? Uh, petrol. Right. And you put the petrol in, and, and the petrol goes in the tank. Does the car wa- weigh more after you put the petrol in the tank? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Right. And when the car is run out of fuel, does it weigh less? Yes, it does. <laughs> and what's happened to the petrol? Uh pretty much vaporized the car's burned it right yeah and what did it do with the results of burning it uh gases came out that's right where did they come out and the exhaust yeah the car th- the car burns the fuel which is a hydrocarbon and wood is is hydrocarbons as well and it reacts the hydrocarbons with oxygen pulled in from the air and the products of burning big chunks of carbon and hydrogen stuck together hydrocarbons is carbon dioxide gas and water gas. This goes out of the exhaust pipe of your car, or in the case of your log stove, up your chimney, into the atmosphere. Now, just because it's in the atmosphere, it doesn't mean it doesn't weigh anything. Because you could collect all of the gases that would come out of the exhaust pipe of your car, and they would weigh exactly the same if you take into account the petrol, which has the, sorry, the oxygen in the air that's been added to the mix, and take away the difference in energy which corresponds to the movement that you've got out of it to drive your car along, they would weigh almost the same as the petrol did. And that's because everything weighs something because everything is made of something. It's made of atoms, and just because they're gases doesn't mean they don't weigh anything. They're just spread out in the atmosphere, so you don't feel their effect. Llewellyn, are you happy? (laughs) Yes, I'm very happy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, Marius in Pretoria, hi. Hello. Yes. How are you? Fine. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'd like to know how does the touch screen work on a cell phone with your finger and with a stylus? Thank you. Okay, so the touch screens on these phones, they contain, um, if you were to look with a microscope, the surfaces of the screens have got a matrix of very fine, fine, tiny conductors running in a grid pattern across the screen. And the phone uses capacitance normally, uh, if in the case of your finger going across the screen, to detect where you have touched the screen. Capacitance is a change in electrical charge on a surface. And because the screen has got a grid pattern it knows where two conduct conductors cross each other and therefore it can work out where you must be touching it. So in other words, I touch the screen and I change the charge distribution of electrical charges on the surface of the screen in a point corresponding to my finger 
and rather like a grid reference on a map, so you can work out where you are on a map with longitude and latitude, the phone or whichever device it is does effectively exactly the same thing by referencing the X and Y coordinate to work out where you've touched it and in what direction your finger's moving. And better phones, which have more responsive screens, have more of those conductors and a more sensitive system for working out where your finger is compared with less... Um, responsive devices and older devices because they're getting better all the time. Jeff in Durbanville, I'm so interested in this one. Jeff, hi. Hi. Uh, um, I would like to question on uh, the ability for people to learn in, in, in their 40s, 50s and uh, general perception of the deterioration of, of the brain. So uh, you want to know, are people over at a certain stage age still able to learn at the same rate as younger ones? Yeah, pre- predominantly because I, I mean, at university, some of the physics professors and math professors that taught me were in their 70s, 80s, and they seemed to be getting sharper even at that age. Okay, aging and brain power, if there's such a thing. Hi, Jeff. Uh, well, there, there's two things going on here because you have to ask yourself well, what is intelligence and what is knowledge? And one part of being very intelligent is reasoning power. In other words, taking disparate facts, bringing them together and synthesizing some kind of argument or seeing a connection between those things. The other thing that your brain does incredibly powerfully is remember things and learn things and make associations between things. Now, both of those are brought to bear when you're using your brain to do anything, whether that's playing sport or writing a maths paper or going and learning about something that you were watching at the cinema and then telling people about it. It's all about recall and making connections and also working things out for the first time. We think that actually we become less good at working things out for the first time and learning new things as we get older. There's evidence that your brain becomes more rigid, quite literally becomes stuck in your ways, mm. and it's less easy for your brain to form new connections to, and break new connections in order to learn new things the older you get. And the evidence for this is that when you're a little baby, no one, there's no school for babies to teach you, say, English. And yet you become a master of this language entirely of your own accord and usually by the age of five you're really very good at English and you know tens of thousands of words. Yet when you then go to school and someone says right now we're going to learn French you need a teacher for that and someone has to help you and you think gosh what's happened to my brain I've become completely disabled I can't learn anymore Mm -hmm. and this is because your brain is becoming much better at keeping hold of the information that it's soaked up and then deploying it in new ways. So when you say some of your professors are becoming sharper, what they've got is a lifetime of experience and I've seen it all before type wisdom to fall back on. And they may not be quite as sharp if you were to give them a Mensa puzzle or say a a Sudoku to do there and then with new reasoning, but if they've seen a pattern that's on that page before, they will be sharp as attack usually. And so we use both forms of knowledge and we substitute one for the other as our brain gets older. Thanks, Jeff. And somebody has sent us an email, Anonymous, uh, wants to know, in as much as it is possible for your eyesight to deteriorate, can it be improved? There are a number of ways that uh, the eye may fail as we get older. The, the, they begin at the front of the eye. If your cornea, which does 80% of the focusing job on the front of the eye, gets damaged, then it will blur the light coming through. If your lens 
which is behind the cornea and does the fine tweaking of the image, gets fogged or damaged by cataracts as you get older. That will also affect your acuity. And then there are things going on at the back of the eye, because the back of the eye is the retina, which is this light-sensitive sheet of nerve cells, where the nerve cells pick up spots of light. That triggers the nerve cells to produce a barrage of electrical pulses. These are sent to the brain and reassembled into the visual picture that we get of the world. Anything in that chain or anything in that process which disrupts that process will lead to deterioration of your vision. As we get older, you do have a higher tendency of getting a cataract, so you'll blur and fog and scatter the light coming in through the front of the eye. That can be repaired, and that's one of the most common operations performed internationally, and in fact one of the oldest operations. The Romans and Greeks had tools, we've, we've found them archaeologically, that could have been used to do cataract surgery to pull out damaged lenses from the eye, so that would have helped to restore vision. If the retina is damaged, and this is very common too, there's a condition called macular degeneration, which is extremely common, and as we get older you have a higher risk of this happening. It can occur because either blood vessels become leaky and proliferate too much, or because stuff builds up under the retina, stopping the photoreceptors, the light-sensitive cells, getting access to oxygen in the blood. The net result is the same, they deteriorate. And as we get older, nerve cells can be damaged as well, which either convey the signals to the brain, or they, they, they are lost from the parts of the brain that decode the visual message. All of these things are going to damage your ability to see as well as you did when you were young. And if your car were to go wrong and it needed a new tyre, you can patch a tyre up, as you know, but it's never going to be quite as good as a new tyre, and we need to work out how to give you a new tyre neurologically. And scientists are not quite there yet, but they're getting there, and there are a number of drugs coming along that can treat a lot of these conditions. People are also experimenting with making new nerve cells that can go into the eye and replace nerve cells that have been lost, and they're even now making electrical implants that can go in the back of the eye, which can decode light coming into the eye and then produce corresponding pulses of electricity which can be put into the nerve cells to make up for a damaged retina. So it's never been a better time actually to get ill because there's more that can be done medically than ever before. Chris, have a lovely, lovely festive season. Enjoy Christmas and the New Year. I'll see you again in January or chat to you again um, in January. I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be having a good time over Christmas. I can assure you of that. And I'm sure you are too, Reedy, and, and everyone out there. Thank you for your lovely questions in 2014, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you in 2015. Ta-da. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.